we do think of birth, obviously, as a celebration of life, but I don't think we see death in the same way. This is Right Here, Right Now, a podcast brought to you by Vocal, an online platform for creators of all kinds and all levels of experience. It's a place to post, to read, to be inspired. I'm your host, Erica Wagner. This season, we'll hear eight essays all posted to Vocal by independent creators. Afterwards, we get to hear from the creators themselves about what inspired them, what they're working on, and what keeps them going. If you have any questions that linger after the episode, head to vocal.media to leave a comment for the authors right on their essay. Who knows? You might be inspired to write something yourself. Here's Right Here, Right Now. Funerals are a rare subject for conversation, and almost never would those conversations fall into the category of optimistic. But that is precisely the perspective we have for you today. Without further ado, here's The Lonely Funeral Project by Gabrielle Benna. The Lonely Funeral Project Anyone who has attended a funeral would know how bittersweet the event is. Poignant in nature, we find ourselves feeling a mixture of contrasting emotions as we come together to celebrate the life of somebody we deeply cared for, often experiencing an abundance of love for the deceased that makes us feel warm, alongside the cold realization that we no longer get to see them every day. But what of those who die in anonymity, who don't have any family or friends to bury them? Indeed, in Amsterdam, it is estimated that at least a dozen people die alone and unclaimed by relatives every year. These could be an array of different people, including those who are homeless, perhaps undocumented, victims of crime, those who overdosed on illicit drugs, babies who were abandoned and older residents living alone who have simply passed from natural causes. Dutch artist and poet Frank Starek and former employee of the Amsterdam Department of Funerals, Herr Fritz, feeling deeply moved by the sense of tragedy left by somebody unclaimed, took inspiration from the poet Bart F.M. Gru in creating lonely funeral poems for the anonymous dead of Amsterdam. These lonely funerals, as the name would suggest, are typically held with a group of pallbearers, a designated civil servant, and the poet. This poet has no relation to the deceased, doing extensive research about those who have died, sometimes with nothing more than a short police report, physical features, or other small details given by neighbors, in order to produce a poem memorializing their life. Depending upon where these funerals were held, the names of the deceased either had to be reduced to just their initials, addressed as either Sir or Madam, or completely fictionalized due to a lack of information. For example, one such poem expresses about a deceased man. Farewell, sir. 
without papers, without identity? What were you looking for? How much did you lose along the way? What was initially started by Dru in the city of Kroningen has come to be seen as a treasured tradition in a number of Dutch cities and even parts of Belgium. Dru never knew the fate of his uncle, Niek, who was put into a concentration camp during World War II and was never seen again. The idea for the lonely funerals partly stemmed from knowing that Niek's story had gone untold, causing Dru to wonder how many others had passed away unnoticed, whose stories needed to be heard. It was in 2002 that Fritz and Starek created their own version of the project, known as The Lonely Funeral in Amsterdam, and 2009 when Flemish poet Martin Ingels was inspired to bring this project to Antwerp. In Amsterdam and Antwerp alone, there have been well over 300 lonely funerals orchestrated to date. There's even a competition for the greatest lonely funeral poem, with its prize being funded by a research program called The Art of Impact, judged by Fritz, which recurs every year. These poems are largely written by those who are not religious, making the sting of fatality much more apparent. It is such that the poems aren't particularly written for those who have already passed. Rather, to bring comfort to the living in the idea that there is always someone looking out for us, even in death. Writing about one such lonely funeral, published most recently in the 2018 book, The Lonely Funeral, edited by Starek and Ingalls, Starek talks of an undocumented man who he names Mr. Chengen Chen. Mr. Chen resided illegally in the Netherlands for quite some years. In 1993, his request for a residence permit for himself and his family was denied. His wife and children returned to China, but Chen remained behind, so officially he had no fixed address. During a fire on 14th March 2016 in the boarding house on the Straat, where he and several other undocumented migrants lived, he apparently jumped from a third-floor window. He died five days later as a result of his injuries. We discuss the fire and how Mr. Chen met his end. According to poet Maria Barnes, he did not actually jump out of the window, but tried to climb down the drain pipe and fell. The dead man wore a peaceful expression. His face was unscarred. Perhaps he had fallen backwards. The book, The Lonely Funeral, not only tells of the writer's personal experiences creating work for and attending such funerals, but also stands as a testament to all of those whose stories slip through the cracks, destined to otherwise be lost forever. In this 224-page volume, published by ARC Publications, 31 selections of poetry and prose were made for the neglected souls of this world. The accounts are touching, at times shocking, the ephemerality of it all sending chills down your spine.
Ingalls and Starek's writing is, however, simultaneously moving, a reminder that we have a responsibility to each other to make the invisible visible, to tell the stories of those who are unable to do it for themselves, even in death. It is impossible to read about the lonely funerals and not be reminded of the stark number of unmarked or mass grave sites which have come about due to the coronavirus pandemic. There is a heavy sense of grief and loss that comes with the knowledge of the many who have lost their lives. In many countries, the subject of death is still taboo, which makes it all so much harder to process as individuals and as a collective. Interestingly, in the UK at least, there has been an upsurge of lockdown poetry which reflects upon our experiences of the pandemic, of loss, love, and resilience during these hard times. This poetry runs parallel with the likes of the lonely funeral writing and is an art form which has helped many of us to keep our spirits up. It is my personal hope that we continue to talk about stuff like this, to celebrate art, life, and everything in between. It is clear how useful art is, how much it helps us psychologically, allows us to grapple with difficult subjects, and makes us feel more connected to the rest of the world, even if we don't have a personal connection to the subject of that art. Starik writes about the responsibility we have to one another in the foreword of The Lonely Funeral. He says that the poet's task at a lonely funeral is discreet and accommodating. He or she addresses in the company of the pallbearers and a civil servant, no one in particular. He is not family. He is not a friend by proxy. The poet brings a salutation to someone he never knew, nor ever will know. We don't know exactly what we're doing. The poet speaks in the darkness. We do not know who we are carrying to the grave. We have no grief of our own. The bottom line is, every human being deserves respect. In times like this, there's some comfort knowing that to the lonely funeral poets, it's as simple as that. That was The Lonely Funeral Project by Gabrielle Benna. When Gabrielle and I discussed her piece, she impressed upon me the importance of optimism in a world of realists and why she feels The Lonely Funeral Project falls into that category. Wonderful. So before we start talking about your piece, I want to go back in time a little bit so you can tell me a bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Ramsgate, Kent, initially. Uh, that's in England. But I'm also half English and half Tunisian. So for a good portion of my teenage years, I also grew up in Benicia, Tunisia. Wow, what an interesting contrast between Ramsgate and Tunisia, I would think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The countries are actually very similar in the way that they're run, but Tunisia has a lot nicer weather than England. 
And I think that I also learned a lot when I lived there as well, particularly about just life, uh, the way things work and who I really want to be when I grow up. Gave me a lot of time to think. (laughs) Tell me how you first started writing. Do you remember the first thing you ever wrote? I do. I do. Uh, (laughs) So I was quite young. Well, I I always loved, I have a love for reading and and I got that from my mum. When I was young, maybe about four years old, actually, I remember sneaking um, four sheets of paper out of the printer and taking them up to my room and uh, making a a short story. It was your classic short story about a a monster in a village and these uh, village of children had to fight to overcome this monster and make things nice for everybody again and create a happy ending. But I've really, really just always been fascinated with writing from there. And even when I would watch TV shows and things like that, I would write my own versions of them too for what I would like to see happen, maybe when I was about 13 or 14, that sort of age. And it's just always been something that's been so therapeutic to me And I think also a lot of fun because you get to take a trip into this world that you've created yourself and there's all of these possibilities in front of you. Uh, And I really think writing can help people as well. It certainly helped me a lot. Uh, So I think that's why I continue to do it. That's what I found anyway. That's fascinating. It sounds like you had a real passion for it from an extremely young age. I have to say writing short stories at four is something that um, very much impresses me. I'm interested, though, that you say that it's therapeutic for you. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, yeah. Well, so I was quite a shy child growing up. And it Believe it or not, ironically, it was quite difficult for me to speak to people. But when I was writing, I would be in my own zone. And I found that it was the only place where I would be able to think clearly and to articulate my thoughts in the way that I wanted to articulate them. And that sort of continued all the way through to, well, I'd say, college age, which in England is 16 to 18, straight after high school, when I would speak to people, because I'd have to, because it was an acting course that I was on, uh, I would actually imagine a keyboard or a pen in front of me, and that would help me um, a lot to articulate in the moment. I would say, particularly with the articles that I've been writing on vocal I didn't just see the writing helping other people. The articles that I wrote really was almost like a diary for me, almost as a way of checking in with myself and learning things about myself and potentially doing some good for other people who are reading it as well. I was going to say that leads nicely, I think, into my next question, because you write under the moniker of outrageous optimism. Where does that moniker come from? It sounds like it's linked to this notion of wanting to give other people and yourself a sense of hope. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it was during lockdown when I started writing with vocal. 
I had felt for a long time, and this feeling was particularly exacerbated over the lockdown when there was lots of negative news in the press, that there was so much negativity and there was so much that was potentially wrong with the world, so much to be angry for. And what I realised I was doing is I was getting very angry a lot of the time and I was bemoaning and crying out against all of these injustices of the world, which I think is a very good thing, by the way. I think we should always talk about these things because how else are we going to change or make things better to be constructive? But what I realized I wasn't doing is that I wasn't looking for any solutions or anything that might make these things better, even if myself as an individual couldn't say right centuries of perhaps institutionalized corruption, for example. One person can't do that, but one person I think does make a big difference. Optimism is always sort of seen as something naive for a person to have a lot of the time. And because of that, people will call themselves realists. But then realism, I found, always seems to go hand in hand with a pessimistic view of the world. And what I wanted to do was not to ignore the negativity, but to sort of pair optimism and realism together and to look at these things that we think could be better or things that we could improve around the world and discuss that, have a conversation, whether that be political or within the media or whether it be personal within your own mental health, things like that. So I take it that influences the topics that you choose to write about. You keep that idea of realism along with optimism, at the forefront of your mind? I'm very careful when I write uh, because I, I think there's, there's a, a difficulty that comes with writing in an optimistic way that people can think it can almost become something of toxic positivity, almost a closer of a conversation rather than an opener. So I'm, I'm always very careful not to hold my research or the opinions that I have back. But then with that, I I won't just, well, I won't just leave it at that. I will then try and find the silver lining or open up a conversation rather than close it and potentially figure out something together with the reader. That's great. And, and we are too. Looking forward to that. Tell me about this piece. When did you decide to write this piece? What was the moment? What was the thing that prompted it? Well, again, I wrote this piece during the height of the lockdown. There was a lot of negative news. I had a lot of free time on my hands and I was doing some research. There were particularly a lot of deaths, of course, during the coronavirus pandemic. There were a lot of unmarked graves because the death toll was so big. And of course, with the Lonely Funeral Project, this this is the whole thing. And it, it really it really struck me what these artists, what these creators would do for John Doe's or, you know, 
unmarked, unnamed bodies and things like that, people that have no relatives, is they would go specifically and they would research these people as much as they can. They would look into police reports, talk to neighbours, trying to get any bit of information they could on this person. And then they would write a piece of poetry and they would get all of the officiants that you needed and they would hold a funeral for them. And I just thought that was such a beautiful thing. And of course, it had spread like wildfire over many, many Dutch cities and uh, some in Belgium particularly as well. I thought it was very comforting to know as a person And the artists do say that these funerals are for the living as a sense of reassurance, a sense of comfort. I thought it was very comforting that no matter where you were in your life, no matter how many people you know, how you passed, that there was always somebody looking out for you and that you wouldn't just obviously slip away and have and and that be it basically i i thought it was just a beautiful beautiful sentiment i wonder if you'd given much thought before to death and funerals as you say in your piece it's something that in western culture anyway we tend to keep at a distance so i'm wanting to to ask you a little bit more about what drew you to this particular project because in some ways it seems an unlikely subject. Mm. No, absolutely. The the subject of death, but particularly in Western cultures, as you say, I think is very taboo still. We don't like to discuss it with each other because then it makes us think about it and it's not a very nice thing to think about, obviously. A lot of the work that I do, a lot of the theatre work that I had created in previous years was really researching and looking into that concept of death uh, and where we go and the imprints that we leave upon the planet as well. And I think that I felt strongly that it was a topic that should be discussed more, that we should familiarise ourselves more with and just be open with each other about it. I think it's a topic in which when we grow older, we often, we don't know what to expect because we haven't spoken to anybody about what what to expect at these different stages of our life. And I think it would be a lot less of a surprise for people if we did regularly talk about these things. I think it ironically might bring a sense of comfort to us, particularly because where the time when I lived in Tunisia during my teenage years, there was the Tunisian revolution and I was there through that And every day you didn't know what was going to happen. You didn't know if the country was going to go from bad to worse. And to to be frank, you didn't know if you were going to, something was going to happen and you were going to die tomorrow. So I really think I made quite a bit of peace with that then. 
I think since experiencing that pivotal moment in my life, uh, experiencing that revolution that I was in, I've just really felt strongly that this message should be shared because I feel that it also makes you not just comfortable, but I think it makes you live for the moment. And I think it makes you make choices in your life that are more aligned to yourself and what you really want to do instead of just performatively impressing people with the job that you get or <laughs> the way that you behave or maybe the partner that you end up with or things like that. I, yeah, I really believe that we should be making the right choices for us. It's always fascinated me that we pay a lot of attention to our entrance into life. A lot of attention is paid to the process of birth, but we ignore the process of death. I wonder if you yourself would be interested in participating in a project like this one. Oh gosh, yeah, absolutely. I think this is another thing that drew me to writing about the Lonely Funeral Foundation and the Lonely Funeral Project. I think the process, first of all, of researching and finding out about a person and not even just the greatest things that they've done in life, but the mundane things, the, the tiny things that made them happy, the things they might have been working towards, maybe the things that they didn't quite get to. I find it fascinating. I would personally love to write a piece of poetry about a John Doe or something like that. And I would love to organize a funeral for them. I think it would be such a beautiful celebration of life. And it's interesting you talk about birth that we concentrate on because we do think of birth obviously as a celebration of life, but I don't think we see death in the same way. And I think creating an event, a sign of respect with art and culture and things like that, I think is a fantastic celebration of that person as they were. I think it's very important to commemorate a person's life and even with people that aren't particularly artists. I think we as artists tend to sometimes over-polish our work, whereas the people who have created uh, this movement, uh, the Lonely Funeral Project, it's, it's, I find it much more raw and real um, and authentic. And I think that's much more able sometimes to touch all of our lives and to, to make us think of something true. How has researching and writing this piece shifted your perspective? I feel personally that I'm much closer to my loved ones. And I think it's changed the way that I've related to other people as I was writing this article, my mental health wasn't great and I felt quite isolated within myself and isolation, ironically, can make you withdraw and less likely to talk to people or to build relationships. I've very much now become a person 
who jumps right in to relationships. I, I feel a lot lighter as a person and I take myself a lot less seriously, I think. I've begun to see the more beautiful things in life. I've begun to see everything as an experience or a lesson and a ride that I'm very pleased to be on and that I enjoy very much. Gabrielle makes a convincing and compelling argument for the importance of optimism writ large, even as she toes the line between a realistic optimism and toxic positivity. Next time on Right Here, Right Now, we'll hear an essay that lays out a roadmap to success. All you need is one thing. Tune in to hear Andy Murphy's The Rarest of Human Qualities, If Cultivated, Can Unlock Superhuman Potential. Whoever you are, whatever your story, Vocal belongs to you. If you like the show, come be a part of where it all got started. Join me and the rest of our brilliant creators on Vocal.media, where you can post, read, and comment. If you like what you hear, join us for season two of Right Here, Right Now, when we dive into stories from the Vocal Plus Fiction Anthology. And of course, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Right Here, Right Now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Erica Wagner. Thanks for listening. Right Here, Right Now is produced by Vocal in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Jacob Fromer and Andrew Hurwitz, and the team at Pod People. Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Ashton Carter, Rebecca Chasson, Carter Wogan, and Morgan Foose.